Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey guys, Oliver here this week. I have an excellent interview with Jeff Russikow, who's the CEO of Boosted Board. Boosted have been at micromobility probably longer than anybody, and we had a great conversation about the dichotomy between shared and owned, why they've got into scooters, and what matters to them. Why do people wanna go premium and buy more expensive gear that is actually almost like a vehicle? I really recommend you check it out. It was one of the most interesting interviews I've done so far. In the meantime, Micromobility Europe is coming up very quickly in about a month. We have discount codes for listeners to this podcast. Oliver and Horace, as the code, will get you 30% off. We're going to have some amazing speakers, Jump, Tia, Lime, Bird, all of them are going to be there. We have panels on software for cities. We have regulators. We have an amazing panel, which I'm so excited about, about autonomy and robotics and micromobility. What does the future look like? It's a peek under the hood. Anyhow, I really recommend you go and check that out, micromobility.io. Come join us, Berlin, 1st of October. In the meantime, please enjoy this excellent interview with Jeff. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Jeff Russikow. How are you going today, Jeff? Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, you're so welcome. I've been so excited to do this episode for a really long time, mainly because I have watched from afar the work that you guys have been doing with Boosted Boards and then the Booster Scooter, which I have on order. There's one on its way down to New Zealand, hopefully pretty soon, and I'll be zooming around. You guys have been really the leaders in the space for a long time, so I'd love to hear a bit more about your story and how you came to Boosted and a bit more about the background of Boosted and itself and the company and where it came from. Yeah, absolutely. So I can introduce myself first and then and then the company. I'm not one of the original founders. I joined a little over two years ago as CEO. Background on me is I actually came from this space. I did a PhD in robotics and autonomous systems a little over 25 years ago and infamously told my friends, I'll see you in about 20 to 25 years because you know a lot of the key technologies just weren't ready. You know, Particularly batteries, Wi-Fi, geotechnology just wasn't there. And I could see it. And so I spent a lot of the last 25 years in other spaces, in large companies. I was a top five exec at four different SAP, Adobe, Symantec, Yahoo. And then about eight years ago, started doing startup and growth CEO gigs. And then the investors reached out to me a couple of years ago and introduced me to, to the folks at Boosted. And it was like coming home. It was literally coming back to my first loves around these kind of products and systems. And the, the guys that founded the company stepped out of the exact same PhD program at Stanford that I finished 25 years ago. Same classes. Right. To this day, some of the same professors. It's like I never left. Yeah. And it was sort of like younger brother, older brother, and it was love. And then, of course, my kids were like, Dad, you have to do this. And I'm like, I could just buy you a couple of boards. And they're like, no, no, Dad, <laughs> you've got to do this. Yeah, Dad, it's not as cool if you're at Yahoo. <laughs> yeah, so it's, this has definitely been the most fun ever. And, and how could it not be? So that's the long intro. The history in the company, I was founded by three fellows who were at, at Stanford. And I, I like the joke, our CTO and founder, John Ullman, 
was a lazy grad student and didn't like walking around campus too far. So he originally bought a longboard and was skateboarding around and then got tired of that. So he, he motorized it and it was going around at 25 miles an hour, but he kept wearing out his shoes trying to stop. So he put in regenerative braking and he's an exceptional engineer and just created the world's first boosted board. And then people started to come up to him and saying, hey, how can I get one of those things? It would completely transform my day. And you know, they really saw it as an exciting and fun thing, but a really new way to get around. And then I think he realized that he was onto something, hooked up with a couple of the other co-founders, and Boosted Boards was, was born. I love that story because it's really... Horace and I oftentimes talk on the podcast about how a lot of this new micromobility kind of movement comes as like piece dividends from the smartphone wars. Like it's just these modular pieces of equipment that get kind of like cobbled together. And then all of a sudden you find that we've got this new kind of vehicle. The tinkerers are the ones who are in creating these new these new vehicles, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I can riff on that metaphor in a couple of ways because I often refer to us as being in the next mobile revolution with the pun on mobile. I think first, you know, if I go back on my story, you know, 25 years ago, a lot of the electromechanical systems and stuff that you're, you're seeing now, whether it be light electric vehicles or you know, drones or many, many other things, we've had a lot of that stuff since the late 80s and early 90s. And we really needed for our friends in the material science department to catch up, you know, batteries, faster computing, and then Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And so the mobile phone revolution literally was the multi-trillion dollar industry that really funded advances in these technologies, because what was always holding us back was the ability to have a battery that literally could hold its own weight. And so if before that, if you were working on a vehicle, underwater you know, submarines or space systems, you always had a cable with power and data going to whatever you had, and you got as far as the cable stretched before you ran out of room. And so you were mobile for about 100 feet. And then I think the second you know, element of mobile revolution is yeah, I think we're in the middle of something that is transformative to the way we live, the way the mobile phone was. So to me, what the mobile phone enabled was we all saved two or three hours a day. Along came this very small, accessible, affordable device that suddenly made communication and computing something you can do anytime, anywhere. And it made us all incredibly more productive and ultimately took you know, 50, 70 different tools and devices and shrunk them down and made us portable. And it literally changed how we live. And then here we are 20, 30 years later, and now we're talking about something very similar, which is the next biggest inefficiency in our life is transportation. I've seen, for example, here in the US, for people that commute, the average commute might be 5.6 miles. The round trip is 89 minutes, almost 90 minutes. So you're averaging like 10, 14 miles an hour. What if you can cut that in half and get 45 minutes of your day back? How much you know, more could you do? And so we're kind of taking this anywhere, anytime computing, and we're now talking about anywhere, anytime transportation or commuting, and really giving people 45 minutes back a day and thousands of dollars a year back into their pocket. So it is kind of a baby, you know, mobile revolution follow on and enabled by the technologies from that first mobile revolution wave. Absolutely. I'd love to, because you guys have been, I mean, when was the first boosted board produced and started being sold? 2012. 2012, right. Yeah, so the first boosted board was 2012. And then Sanjay, Matt, and John really stepped out of proper around 2014. They did not one, but two of the accelerators, so Y Combinator and Stanford Stardex. And then from there, uh, Kickstarter. So I guess the full trifecta. And there, as you may recall, one of the most successful Kickstarter campaigns of, of its day, particularly for this type of a product hardware product. And then it kind of took off from there. 
and then you know really grabbed several more gears uh, since. Today, the company is global. We ship in 34 countries around the world, and we not only ship directly, but through many different you know major retailers online, offline, and it's more of a, a growth stage company today. Mm-hmm. Can you share, do you guys release public data on sales? Because I couldn't find anything. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I just want to know because I see a lot of them. And even in New Zealand, they've become a, a hit there, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry, private company. But I think based on the number of people you see zipping around, it, it should hopefully give you a sense. It's definitely a growth stage company now. Yeah, excellent. So, you guys started producing the booster board back in 2012. What was the original insight that you had then? And because I mean, I feel like the space has really started getting like they're validating your ideas now with the explosion in scooters, etc. What did you see then, and how do you think that that's playing out now in terms of you know how you've positioned yourself and the products that you're bringing out? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. The the market has played out amazingly close to to how the company has consistently viewed how the space would play out all along. So we've always viewed that light electric vehicles of, of many different types would ultimately become you know, a major micro-mobility phenomena. And what we saw is really obvious, which is 55% of the human race now lives in an urban and densely suburban environment, and it's going up towards the 70s you know, in the next couple of decades. So a couple billion people are going to be moving into the neighborhood, and the cities aren't getting any bigger. Meanwhile, we're about 100 to 120 years you know, into a, an auto-based model that's literally been grinding to a halt for, for most of our generation and, and before. So half of all car trips are less than three miles, something like 60% of them are less than five. And so we're all spending this time going and getting this 3,500-pound beast, traveling and being in traffic amongst other beasts, and then trying to find parking for the beast for really short trips. And so literally, we're all averaging about 10 to 14 miles an hour. And so we've all seen this problem for a long time. We've all been spending two hours a day in traffic. So then along came the electric car. And I think what we all recognized is electric vehicles are great. Electric cars made the traffic jam cleaner, but you're still in a several thousand pound, 15 foot long beast. Nothing got smaller and didn't solve any of the commute issue. And then the next generation was auto sharing, you know, Uber and, and Lyft and the rest. And there is an incremental benefit in that you now have a way to hail something and you don't need to, to park. But we really think of that as taxi 1.5. We've had shared cars with a driver for almost as you know, the 100, 120 years has been cars. And what we've seen over time is that the car share has become the traffic. And so here in San Francisco, traffic has increased by 60% in the last five years while the population hasn't changed. In a place like Manhattan, 140,000 Uber and Lyft cars on the island on any given day. And they're becoming the traffic because they're like 40-something percent empty in order to be able to available to pick you up in a few minutes. And now people are talking about how can we have self-driving? We're basically conceding that you're going to be stuck in traffic for two hours and now just trying to make the two hours more pleasant to pass at that time with some music or some work. So I think we've kind of viewed it differently from day one. Our view has always been, you know, maybe the vehicle needs to be smaller. And with the technologies, you know, coming out of the mobile phone revolution, you really can make something that's only tens of pounds that really is vehicle grade, has the acceleration and deceleration and hill climbing of a real vehicle. And this would really transform how you get around. Because if you ask most people what they want, what they'd really say is, I want to throw my iPhone on the ground and surf it. And so what they're really looking for is, I want something that has no size, that has no weight, 
It's electric, so I don't have to do any work. You know, I don't want to get a break of sweat. But I want it to be instant. I want it to be instant. The minute I go out the door, I just want to go. No hailing, waiting, finding. I just go. There's no traffic because I'm tiny. I can get anywhere in downtown Manhattan or San Francisco for coffee in five minutes. And then when I'm there, I'm there. I just go up the elevator. And then there's no parking. I just throw this thing in a bag or under my desk. I want it to be multimodal and complement other forms of transportation. So maybe I take New Jersey Transit into Penn Station, New York, and they take this thing 30 bucks to my office. But then tonight, I'm with my friends. When I go to dinner, I want to jump into a lift. But then they also want it to be vehicle grade, safe, reliable, durable, and performing. And they want it to be pennies per mile. And so what they're really describing is some kind of light electric vehicle, whether it be a skateboard or a scooter or a wheelchair or a bike. They just want some kind of super portable, super stowable, vehicle grade light electric. And so I think from the earliest days, the company Boosted knew that we would always proliferate a variety of different vehicles. We started with the skateboard because the skateboard is actually the most extreme version that we can think of a micro vehicle, right? You're, you're getting down to something you can throw into a backpack and just make disappear or tuck between your knees while you're on the bus or going into to class. And so a skateboard really is like a 15-pound Tesla for your feet. And so then if you follow the, the natural evolution from that, not everyone is comfortable getting on a skateboard. It's a little bit athletic. And so, but the minute you throw a handlebar in there, everybody's game. And so the standing kick scooter, as we all you know, refer to it, really is the next most you know, stowable, portable vehicle you can come up with that also works really well for you know, one, three, five, seven mile kind of jaunts. And then from there, you can imagine you know, a seated vehicle, you know, whether it be bike or Vespa or other form factors. Now you're starting to think more of a suburban workhorse. I'm going seven to 10 miles. I've got stuff. I have pizzas. I have a briefcase. I need a Ford F-150. <laughs> yeah. So the whole reason that the company's name Boosted is because we boost stuff. We're really, really very good at making high-performance, lightweight electric powertrains. So battery, battery management, motor driver motors, and then putting different vehicles of high quality over it. So you know, the Boosted board really is basically putting a powertrain on a board with wheels. And now you, know, you can see with the launch of the scooter, we're just taking that same platform and starting to proliferate. Just like with Tesla, what makes a Tesla a Tesla is not really the metal and the glass. It's a great looking car, but it's that powertrain and the firmware that runs it that makes a Tesla a high performance car. And now you can start to think Roadster, sedan, SUV platforms of high fidelity over that. So that's probably getting a little bit into to why we launched the, the scooter. Yeah, no, totally. That makes a lot of sense. And it's funny, I mean, in my own purchasing decision of why I went and I saw I have a Xiaomi Mi 365 and that's good, but it's sort of, you know, underpowered for what I need, etc. And I've got a mate who's got the booster board and I always just wrote on it and I thought if I got one of these things, I would probably hurt myself because I wanted the, I want the handlebar. I want that ability to, I just feel like it's a lot safer. And so when you guys came out with the rev, it was like, brilliant. That's awesome. I've always wanted to buy a product from you guys anyway. Well, thank you. And, and what we're going for, whether it be the board or the scooter or other products in the future is we're really going for vehicle grade with no disrespect at all to any of the scooters out there. The most of the generation of scooters that people are riding were designed as a, a toy or a leisure grade product. The engineers were not really thinking, I'm making a vehicle grade product that's going to go over potholes and broken streets with a truck behind me trying to kill me and being able to go up and down a San Francisco hill safely. 
And so, you know, we've seen the result of that, which is that the vehicles aren't up to the job when put into a rental or a share model, they're dying within 30 to 60 days. And we're seeing a lot of issues. So much like the Tesla analogy, where they famously started with a clean sheet of paper and said, if I designed an electric vehicle from the ground up, a car, versus trying to figure out how to shoehorn a motor into what we conceive of as a car today, how would I do it? And we've always taken the same approach, which is we're a vehicle company. If you were to make an electric vehicle in a skateboard format, if you were to make an electric vehicle in a scooter format from the ground up, what would you want it to be? So we want something that you can pound a few hundred thousand times at you know hundreds of pounds of force and that you can throw in a lake and that you can take up and down tough hills and that is fire safe. You know, we've always basically said vehicle grade, vehicle grade, vehicle grade. And that's why people see such an incredible difference between a boosted and other electric skateboards within skate, where a vehicle company in a market that mostly is people putting batteries and motors on, on a toy product, and now the same with, with Scooter. Yeah, awesome. And I'm really curious, you've now been selling them for seven years. Do you know for your customers, as you sort of mentioned, a lot of them are thinking of these as multimodal vehicles. Do you have any data can you that you can share around how your customers are actually using them? Like, are they looking at getting rid of cars, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have a lot of data clearly on skateboard. With Scooter, we're just beginning to get data because we've been shipping for such a short while but we know the punchline. The thing that really surprised me the most when I first came to know the company myself, over 80% of the boosted board riders use the board as part of their commute. And about two thirds of them say they use it on a daily basis or very frequently. And, and, and quite a few of the rest use it at least one or two times a week. So most of the boards, including the ones all the way back from 2012, which are still on the road and doing just fine, you know, they're very durable. People are basically, their the number one use case is going to work or school. Their number two is running errands. And then pure fun is, is actually third. And I realize they're having fun the whole time. But just like you buy a sports car, sports cars are more fun than an SUV, but you're still buying the car to go to work. And so what really was interesting was 82% of respondents to our surveys said they're using it as a, as a commute vehicle. A very large percentage of them you know, didn't necessarily even identify as a skater. A very large percentage of them. What we found is with the skateboards, it was sort of a quarter, 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 quarter between people who had never been on a skateboard in their life before buying a boosted. A quarter or tried it as a kid, didn't like it. A quarter maybe skated in grade school and high school. And then a quarter still really said, hey, I'm a hardcore skater. And so that was really interesting. People were really and still viewing the vehicle as, as micro mobility. When you go over into the, the scooter form factor, then then you're really even further doubling down on people looking for an alternative means of transportation that's fun and sporty, but they're definitely looking to, to buy the, the boosted scooter as an alternative to a uh, means of transportation that saves them 45 minutes a day and saves them you know, many thousands of, of dollars a year over any other option. Yeah, awesome. So you guys, obviously, you're focused very much on ownership so far, and that's it makes sense. In the early days, it'd be very challenging, I imagine, to build a shared system and similar to Lime and Bird on a skateboard platform. But I am really curious, you are getting into scooters and you are, as you say, shifting to like you, you come to this with a mantra of building things as automotive grade. I mean, that's the biggest problem that we've seen in that. And that shared model has been these things were really just toys and they were exceptionally good at identifying that there's a lot of demand there. But curious from your guys' perspective, is that an area that you're looking at? I mean, it makes sense that you'd look at trying to get into it at some stage, would it not? 
To be honest, we have no plans to directly offer some type of a shared service over our, our vehicles. So first, we think it's awesome that there are so many companies with different business models putting a lot of light electric vehicles out on the street and getting people to consider them as a means of getting around and to try them. Because the, the biggest challenge and opportunity is, you know, it, this is a think different moment like 1984 and Apple to get people to just shake off their entire life of just getting into a car and sitting in traffic and listening to radio and just say, hey, there are other ways you can do this. So any means by which we're getting any type of, of safe vehicle out on the street and getting people to think about micromobility is goodness for the world. And so we celebrate and, and have solidarity with all the different players and, and models. That said, I think what's been interesting is I think that the last mile transportation narrative has been a little bit distorted and hijacked by the investor community and the amount of exciting momentum around share. Here's the interesting fact if you look at history. 99% of vehicles are owned. So if I look at cars, $3 trillion a year in light consumer car sales, Uber's $14 billion. If I throw in all car share, which is still about 75% taxi, it's about $150 billion. So that's like a small single-digit percentage of $3 trillion. If I look at bikes, $32 billion a year in bike sales. Once again, you know, hundreds of millions to a billion in bike share overwhelmingly in one country, in China. But you're still looking at a small single digit. And then if I look at electric scooters today, it's already a $15 billion industry. And if I take, say, Bird and Lime and you know, latest numbers I've heard between the two of them together, maybe 40, 50 million rides at four bucks a ride, they're still at the hundred something million dollars in revenue combined. So if you include electric moped and those formats, you know, blow motorcycle, and then just the folding category is already a $3 billion industry. And so the overwhelming 90-something percent of all these vehicles are owned. And so I do think, to be clear, I'm not trying to anyway not be excited about share, but I just want to put in perspective, you've got a phenomenon that's one, two, three percent of the vehicles that may be growing quickly on its way to five, six percent of the vehicles. But what we need to understand is 90 you know, X high 90% of vehicles, including cars we've had for a hundred years. And we've had, you know, bikes and shared bike for quite a few years now. So what's going on there? What I believe is what's happening is if you take all travel, you can kind of put it into two buckets. You've got routine travel, commuting, going to school, running errands. And then you've got, you know, ad hoc or extemporaneous travel, going to a bar, going to a restaurant, don't want to deal with my car. I already parked my car at the office and want to go across town and back or I'm in a city I don't normally live or travel in. And so a vehicle share is fantastic for ad hoc travel. And so whether it be taxi or Uber or scooter share, I'm perfectly happy to pay four, eight, fifteen dollars $15 for that ride to essentially go a mile and a half, two miles, because it's incredibly convenient, but it's really expensive. I'm basically, you're paying about $2 a mile when you get into an Uber or on a shared scooter. And so for occasional use, awesome. But if you're going from the train station to your office and back a mile and a half every day, do you really want to pay eight, 10 bucks round trip or just go into Amazon and, and <laughs> or something to buy a, a scooter? And so I think what's going on is for commuting, for regular travel, you care about two things. Is it instantly available without any danger it won't be there? You can't be late for work. You can't be late for school. 100% reliability is waiting for you. And it's got to be pennies per mile or dimes per mile to operate to make it economical. And that's why most people own a car, even if it's the most expensive thing they own, 
is because once you own it, the marginal cost of operating the vehicle is really, really low. And so, you know, there's just a very large percentage of travel. And so I think whether you go back to a horse and buggy or chariot or go up to car or bike, there's a reason why, a fundamental reason why the vast majority of, of vehicles are, are owned. And then the share model is a, a great and, and increasingly available way due to cell phone and all the other things that enable it to do a better job around share. But economically, you know, it's never going to be as cheap as ownership if you commute with any regularity. And so that's how it's always played. And so the, our view is it'll probably play the same way. We'll continue to see some growth in share. And in places where there's high density of ad hoc travel, particularly between people going between common places, like a downtown area, same places you tend to see taxi or whatever, or Uber, you would see share proliferate. But then the vast majority of, of the rest of the vehicles would be owned. And so if you're the provider of a vehicle, in our case, we don't really have to have religion on this in that because we're like the apple of light electric vehicles, we can serve both wedges of the pie chart. We don't have to have a strong opinion on it. But we recognize, at least for the foreseeable future, the vast majority of vehicles are owned and purchased. And then there's the opportunity to to serve or not serve the share community. No, no. Hey, look, that's a great answer because it's really, I mean, I think it is really counter to a lot of that narrative that we're seeing and where the hype is. Trust me, being in the middle of Silicon Valley with that very conventional view is an interesting spot to be. No, people are just going to buy their things. Uh, what? Are you mad? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then let's also forget the other piece, which is in, in my generation and probably in my parents' generation, you know, your identity came from your car. And I think for, you know, the millennial generation, their identities come from, you know, more of their, their mobile device. I think when you do have a personal transportation device, you know, you do have, I joked earlier about people want to throw their iPhone on the ground and surf it. But what we've observed is people do want to have a bit of a relationship to their vehicle and uh, customize it and personalize it and do things with it and be excited about it because it's small and portable like a phone, you know, bigger, but still small and portable. There's also this, let's not forget, this is a, a human race that really likes to own their, their phone, own their ride and express themselves as well. And so we're seeing shifts over time, but I don't think we're seeing that dramatic a shift over time. It's still the human race. Yeah, that's very fair. So one of the things that we oftentimes, I went, went through this process of deciding to buy a boosted rev, which is the scooter, obviously. And when I looked around, I didn't see, well, I struggled to find another competitor that I thought, mm, that's the kind of that combination of, you know, good quality grade, strong enough to get up the hills because I live in Wellington and it's very steep here. And, you know, something that would be stylish as well. Curious for you about how you think about competition. I mean, who do you think you're competing against? Yeah, I'll answer that in two ways. You know, what type of transportation or form factor are we competing against? And then more directly, your, your question is also, it's interesting that to some degree, we are a category unto our own in many ways and what we make. So I think we are really viewing ourselves as a vehicle company that is directed at micromobility. So the, the primary competition is the car, whether it's the owned car, whether it's the taxi or the shared car. As I mentioned before, our goal is to try and get as many people as we can you know, out of the automobile in urban and dense suburban and onto some type of light electric vehicle that is their favorite form factor. And so we don't really have a strong opinion whether it's a skateboard or a scooter, just like there's no one type of car. Some people want a sports car. Some people need a minivan. 
we just want people to have a variety of different light electric vehicles that meet their needs. So for distances that are longer than a walk, you know, and shorter than a freeway ride, that is what we, we see as what we are offering a better solution to. And we actually believe that we complement, in our case, public transportation as well. I know that there's some concerns with vehicle share competing, but if we can get more people to go the long distances on public transport, and we're really just solving that, you know, last one or two miles from public transport to and from the house or, or the office, we think that we're trying to partner with that. So we basically see anything that's sort of a one to five mile range transportation option as our competition. We don't think of ourselves as competing in the skateboard market or the scooter market. We think we're competing in the multi-trillion dollar micromobility market as an option. We are in an interesting market niche in, in a way that makes sense to us, but other people ask about a lot, which is we make a really high quality premium fidelity light electric vehicle. In an industry where people think of electric skateboards you know, as, as a very inexpensive commodity item that doesn't last very long, we're making ones that go for tens of thousands of miles and years, maintenance free or nearly. And now with the, the scooter, we're going into a market where people are often buying a four or $700 leisure grade product and then having to buy them frequently. And we come out with a $1,600 vehicle that clearly is made to last for years and years and years. So our view is, a little bit, let's turn this on its ear. If I say car or motorcycle or guitar or camera, people naturally understand that there's a a toy or commodity category. There's sort of a mid-market and there's a premium and there's a difference. If I said, would you like to buy this $7,000 car? You would probably view it suspiciously. What's interesting about some of these other vehicle form factors like a, a board or a scooter is these industries have largely only existed in the toy commodity category. There hasn't been mid-market and premium. And I think people are still kind of making the connection, hey, this is a vehicle and there ought to be good, safe, reliable ones just like there are of cars and motorcycles and mopeds. You know, I need to have a safe vehicle. And so we have basically, once again, tried to do the blindingly obvious perhaps, which is if we think that people need to move to light electric vehicles, what we need to make is a vehicle, a vehicle-grade product that has enough power to merge in with traffic and stop sharply, go up and down any hill, carrying a real grown person and stuff, you know, get into accidents or collisions and, and be robust, be able to take a pounding for years and years and years, and be fire safe. And so from our point of view, we're making an extremely inexpensive vehicle, not a very, very expensive toy. That lines up, yeah, because I've, I've had a couple of people kind of push back and say, you know, you're buying effectively a 1700 US dollar scooter, like, that's crazy. And I'm like, well, I spent, you know, five times that on my car, like, this is, and I, and, and I use the scooter. Yeah, and how much would you pay for a moped or for a Vespa? And so, you know, I've also seen people offer, hey, like, why would I pay $1,600 for a, a premium scooter if I can just take scooter share for $4 a ride? That's like 400 rides. Well, if you do the math for a second, if you just went to and from work every day on scooter share, forget about lunch and coffee. Just just take one round trip a day. Five over two years, you're spending like eight grand, and so sixteen hundred dollars. So so what you're really doing is you're buying a vehicle once, and you're down to two dollars a day for unlimited mileage and no parking, or you can pay two dollars a mile for scooter or or car share. You can pay like a couple bucks for subway. If you take your car, it's 40, 50 cents a mile between insurance and depreciation, and then parking could be $30 a day. 
So quite literally, buying a premium scooter is the cheapest thing you can do. And the, the rough trade-off is if you think you will replace even three Uber rides a month or six round-trip scooter rides a month, you're better off buying. So I think that's, you know, it's been interesting to see people slowly start to grok the, or understand the, the math and go, oh. So what's been fun for us is scooter share has been awesome because somebody's spending a billion dollars of somebody else's money to put free demos on every street corner on the planet and educate people to the value of these vehicles and the utility. And there's a bunch of people say, this is great. I'm going to use share thing. And that's awesome. And then there's a bunch of people say, I like this so much, I'm going to buy one. And then if they want a vehicle grade one, there's only one. So we're, we're in an interesting market spot. Yep. That's great logic. I love that. So talking about safety, you mentioned that a couple of times, you know, fire safe and, and other things that certainly has factored into when I'm thinking about it again, my purchasing decision, it's like, oh, no, it's a heavier vehicle. It's got bigger wheels. It looks more solid. How do you guys think about safety? We think about safety a lot. You know, as I've mentioned a few times, we really view ourselves as a vehicle company. And so we, we take safety and reliability, you know, as being utmost in, in, in its importance. There's a few different types of safety that I think we want to get people, including public policy officials, thinking about more. One, and I think the obvious one, is the safety of the vehicle itself. Nobody lets you take a rental car off the lot that isn't roadworthy. And yet we are genuinely putting, as you know, seeing an industry putting out, you know, leisure grade or toy grade products into to cities that people are getting on that clearly are not safe in terms of the vehicle itself. The frames break, the tires blow out, the batteries may set on fire and or when being charged, the accelerators can stick. But probably most importantly, the brakes are terrible. They often reliant on mechanical brakes which get out of tune, get wet. And so the vast, vast, vast majority of people who get hurt on a scooter are not hitting something. They're getting hurt because they can't stop. And they can't make it up a hill and they can't stop going downhill. You know, we take very seriously, there needs to be vehicle grade standards for the vehicle, like you know, we've seen over the last 100, 120 years with cars and with motorcycles, et cetera. There needs to be standards around safety. And so what we've done is we've taken a lot of standards from the automotive and the motorcycle industry that we think are appropriate and scaled them for this class of vehicle. And we basically built to our own standard in addition to, you know, if you look at most of the certifications that today's electric scooter needs to pass, they're not much different than a desk lamp. You know, okay, it won't set on fire if you plug it into, you know, if you drop it from three feet, it won't crack. This is not the standards of a vehicle. So how can I slam this thing 250,000 times that way with 100 pounds? How can I hose it down with salt water <laughs> or leave it in a snowbank? I've gone long on that, but we, we cannot stress enough. I think people are focusing too much on the speed limit of a toy to make it safe rather than basically yeah. setting the standards for a vehicle-grade product and then, then figuring out what the speed limits should be for that. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point because certainly at least I'm using the New Zealand context because I understand it better, but the way that we've regulated the scooters that use for scooter shares at the moment, they all skim under because we've got this kind of weird part of our legislation, which is all recreational. It's, these are all recreational vehicles. They're toys. And so they don't have any warrant of fitnesses whatsoever. No. If I showed you a car for the first time in your life and I said, this is a car and I showed you a wooden go-kart with a stick for a brake you might very reasonably say, hey, five miles an hour seems pretty fast for that thing. This has got to stick for a break. If I showed you a car for the first time in your life and it was a Tesla, you might say, I think this thing's safe to go at 20 or 25 miles an hour, for example, on a residential street. And so I think what's going on is, you know, one of the, the side effects 
that what's been good about share is we're getting a lot of vehicles out there and creating awareness. What's been a, an unfortunate byproduct is most people's concept of what is a scooter is not a vehicle grade scooter. And then they're, you know, appropriately reacting to speed and power. The second thing, which I think has been an issue is regulating power. How much power should the vehicle have? There's a couple of concerns there. One is most regulators don't know what a watt is and have no real ability to understand 250 watts versus 350 watts. And the way the vehicles are designed, it's not that useful a measure. But in our case, what we believe is power equals safety. You know, just because you have a more powerful vehicle doesn't mean you need to go fast. But we all know from riding a car, if your car has enough power to merge in and out of traffic or go up or down a hill safely, that's a safer vehicle than if it's underpowered. And so one of our concerns is, you know, a lot of countries starting to put 250 watt limits on the vehicle. You're dooming that vehicle to never have good electric brakes ever and be a less safe vehicle. So I think there's an opportunity to educate for the industry to educate people about what does and doesn't make sense to make a safe vehicle. The other piece of safety is around business model. And this is one area where I will express some concern about the share model a a bit relative to ownership. When people own a vehicle, they usually know they're going to be riding the vehicle and they're much more likely to have a helmet. When people come across a vehicle ad hoc in the moment, they most likely don't. And so the vast majority of injuries we're seeing on scooters are vehicle share and the person is not wearing a helmet. 45% of injuries are a lack of a helmet. The second thing is when people buy a vehicle, they usually figure out how to use it or ride it before they go into traffic. You know, the first time I drove a car or rode a bicycle or a motorcycle, I didn't do it on Fifth Avenue in New York. And so when people own a vehicle, they just have a a higher natural level of getting the hang of it first. Whereas in the case of a vehicle share, people are getting on an unfamiliar vehicle or vehicle type that they've never been on before in the most busy and dangerous environment they could possibly be, a downtown area with traffic. And so we've seen these early studies from scooter share where something like one out of three people that get injured in scooter share are on their very first ride. And like 63% of them are within their first nine rides, less than 10. And that is something that is an artifact of the business model, introducing people without a helmet to a foreign vehicle in a dense traffic environment. And that is introducing a safety issue unrelated to the safety of the, of the vehicle. Yeah, completely. And actually, I'd love to unpack for you guys as well, because one of the things that I have always admired about Boosted is that the, you guys offer, you know, you do a lot to build community. You know, you see there's people who get together and they ride Boosted boards around and it's a big thing. You've done a really good job of helping set the narrative around, hey, safe use of micromobility and everybody should wear helmets, etc., Curious if you've ever gone and waded into the infrastructure debates, because it strikes me as being that like, you know, in the same way that the car industry got very involved with the the early discussions around building highways, etc. You guys have a an interesting part to play in your in the in the discussion around, hey, we should have safe infrastructure, bike lanes, etc. These low speed lanes that could operate in cities. Has Boosted ever kind of gone into that? Can you comment on how you'd think about it? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, not as much as we would have liked over the years. And part of the reason is just, you know, in the early days as a really small company, first, just didn't have the staff or the personnel to get involved. But also, until about the last year, year and a half, as micromobility has gotten a lot more traction, there just weren't enough vehicles on the street for most public policy officials to just prioritize it as something they needed to address. So I think, you know, the industry, the proliferation of vehicles, 
as well as our own scale, have only recently started to make it possible to, to get involved in, in these kind of discussions. The area that we've mostly focused on is around safety of the vehicles, less so around a lot of areas of infrastructure, at least more broadly. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We've seen a lot of people that are spending a lot of time trying to talk about charging infrastructures around countries and cities or you know, self-driving infrastructures. We're actually doing the opposite. We're making a product that you can ride today without anybody spending $300 billion or a trillion dollars of, of infrastructure. When people buy the vehicle, they tend to take it inside and charge it when they're not using it. And we're using the pavement that already exists. So one of the things that's really interesting to me is about one-third of our city surfaces are already paved between street and parking lot. We don't need more pavement. There's plenty of pavement. And so when people talk about how do we deal with parking, and I do understand in the case of scooter share, putting these vehicles out on the sidewalk everywhere is causing all kinds of, of mayhem. But if I step back for a minute, the blight we don't see is every side of every street on the planet's got 40 cars parked on it. We just don't see it anymore. We grew up with it. But I'm sure if you went back in 1920, somebody was like, why are they giving both sides of the street to these cars? We just decided, particularly in the modern world, you know, we've built cities for cars, not people. And there's 40 cars on both sides of each street. If you just removed one car, take your favorite can of paint, I don't know, purple, and just paint a rectangle with a little sand. You've got parking for 20 or 30, light vehicles, bicycle, powered, whatever. And so I actually claim that public policy officials can, quote unquote, create infrastructure for light vehicles just by reallocating the pavement that they already have with paint. I do agree Europe has done a better job of creating truly protected bike lanes where there's physical barriers, and that's even better. But I actually do think you can massively transform our ability to get more people on light vehicles for the cost of paint. And because we're talking about light electric vehicles that do have ranges of 20, 30, 40 miles on a charge and are small enough to throw into your desk, there isn't really this need for these massive charging infrastructures and self-driving things and flying cars. So we actually are not trying to create a lot of infrastructure and, and argue for it. We're actually claiming we've spent 120 years as a society paving probably too much. Let's just use the pavement we already have. Yep, completely. Want to change back a little bit? You you came to this as a tech executive. Obviously, you'd been in the battery space before, etc. But I'm really curious. This is a deeply hardware supply chain dependent business. What have been the the challenges that you guys have faced at it Boosted when you look at your growth and where you're thinking of going as well in the future? I think there's a couple of challenges the company you know has faced. One is just the growth from being a Kickstarter company, you know, making thousands of units by hand to being a, a global company, about half the globe now. So how do you basically make you know, a very large six-digit numbers of, of vehicles at any given time you know, at that scale with that quality and that, that safety and that distribution and make it work? And so we as a company had to go you know, through the growth stage to being a global company. And we are a tiny fraction the size of, say, an Apple or a Sonos or whatever, but we have such a quality product and a following, people expect us to have that kind of quality of product and experience. So one of the challenges is, as just a consumer hardware company versus a software company, there is a massive amount of supply chain and manufacturing capability and quality and reliability. And then further, it's not like the consumer electronics space. We're making a vehicle. So we are trying to create vehicle level standards. 
But then also we're running on electric batteries, which are way more powerful than a Samsung 7 (laughs) battery or laptop battery. I've given you a long answer, but I guess that the short answer is, I think from probably around 2014 until 2018, the ability to go from US and Canada to about half the globe and still expanding, the ability to get to, you know, tier one mass production supply chain, to be able to engineer and innovate and scale with that kind of quality and to focus on that is, was a huge thing for a company to digest. In terms of the second thing, if there's one thing that surprised me a bit is the investment community you know, in the US and, and Europe being in a, a model where you have to deploy a lot more working capital before the product is launched versus very slowly over time is an additional challenge to clear when you're this kind of a company versus, say, a, a software company. Yeah, completely. Because I was going to say, you guys raised, if I get this correctly, you raised $60 million in your last round. Exciting times. Curious for that race. I mean, as you say, Silicon Valley doesn't exactly have a great history of investing in consumer-grade hardware startups. So when you say it's hard to convince everybody, how did you do that? Yeah, several different pieces into that. We've been fortunate to have incredible support from the investors in the company. Coastal Ventures has been in the company almost from the get-go, well, Series A, almost from the get-go. Patrick Pache, who's the former CFO of Google, is on our board and is now participating through Inovia and then more recently Activate Capital and a host of others. I do think what's been interesting about this is we are touching you know, a next mobile revolution problem. So I think it is easy for investors to understand this is a multi-trillion dollar painkiller, not a vitamin type of a solution to a major problem that can touch billions of people without glossing VC visionary blue sky. It really is Everyone has this problem and everyone can clearly see the benefit of of solving it. And so the size of the market and the opportunity is clear. I think the only thing that maybe was interesting to investors is what's the business model? Is it, you know, you're providing vehicles and they're owned? Is it you're putting out commodity vehicles and they're shared? And that's why I think you've seen people experimenting with different investment theses. And this one's proving out to, for the reasons I mentioned, be interesting because the majority of vehicles are, are owned. And because the economics of owned vehicles, you know, at least still massively are better than the economics to be proven of, of share. So I think we've actually been fortunate in that we've been able to find investors that really have been able to divine on those key tenants and see the market in the future the same way that we do. So you raised 60 mil. That's awesome. That's like a big chunk of change. What are you planning on doing it with? We've obviously seen the scooter. You earlier mentioned the seated, something that had a seat was potentially of interest. Curious if you can reveal or talk to the things that you find interesting. Yeah, so I can outline some broad themes, given that we've just very recently you know, launched the, the boosted rev you know, standing scooter. I'm, I'm going to stick with that as the news. And I, for good reason, I think if people really like that product, they should jump on it unintended, I guess. As I've mentioned a few times, our view is there is not one right form factor vehicle. Just like with a car, some people want a convertible, some people want a sedan, some people want a truck, some people want an SUV. We believe that there's no one right shape or form of, of light electric vehicle. And so what we, we have said and will continue to say is we will continue to proliferate additional form factors. I'm not at liberty to announce anything new at this point, But I will simply say, if you just think through the obvious, if there's one thing that's probably been a consistent message through this past hour is we continue to invest in the blindingly obvious and it's been working really well. 
a lot of the vehicles that we're we're all doing you know out, out in the world you know whether it be skateboard or scooter or things like that we're adopting form factors that people are already familiar with because we're still at a state where we're trying to get people comfortable to try out these vehicles that said if you started from a clean sheet of paper and didn't constrain yourself to it needs to be an electric version of something somebody already knows how to ride you might come up with something wildly different and so i'll leave that as the the cryptic message in terms of some of the things that we're thinking about. I think the the other thing that you know I'd offer is it's more than just the vehicle itself, the software and the data and the ability to engage with the vehicle and have richer experiences above, you know, the vehicle, you know, matters a lot as well. And there's a lot more to be done there. I don't think the micro mobility industry has anywhere near the toolkit of things available to to the rider that, you know, a really nice car has, for example. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities there. I think there's a lot of opportunities for light vehicles and cars to partner or collaborate in interesting ways. Maybe you take your car to the edge of the city and then pull your light vehicle out and the nav moves from the dashboard over to your phone and you continue your journey. And so I think there's a lot of things to be done around experiences and data and features and over and above the vehicle itself. We've been doing that in autos for, for decades. We have an opportunity to do this in light vehicles as as well. Very cool, excellent. Well, look, I'm I'm aware we're kind of running up against time, but I just want to say thank you so much, Jeff, because this has been a very enlightening conversation for me. I think you bring such a different viewpoint that there is so much hype around shared, and I think you guys are just you've been at it for a really long time. You understand the space super well. Everything you say is, as you say, blindingly obvious. So, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you having me on and for the opportunity to kind of share some of our views on the space. Excellent. Well, looking forward to uh, hopefully having you come and join us at Micromobility when we get back to California and have you up on stage at some point. Absolutely. We'd love to do it. And in the meantime, give us a shout when your rev arrives in a couple of days and let us know how you like it. Will do. Cheers, mate. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.